0: About 13 years ago, I lived in London, and a part of London that I think some of you are quite familiar with called Cockfosters, which was suburban, leafy North London, quite a posh area where people would tend to live, who then worked in the centre of London, but 13 years ago, I was getting ready to move away from Cockfosters, and my situation there was pretty sweet, actually. I, I was doing youth ministry. I, I had a job that I really liked doing. I was working with this church that had loads of great groups for kids and for young people. I had responsibilities. I, I had people on the team who were lovely people. I had great friendships there. They also paid pretty well. Uh, and they, they owned a house that I got to live in, and this is Cockfosters, North London, three-bedroom semi-detached house. Me, a single guy in my twenties at the time. And they're like, you "Have the house, Tom. You can have it to yourself." And so I got to live in this amazing house, and I decided to leave it all. And the reason why I, I left that was because over a period of time, as I've been praying, I felt that God was speaking to me about a couple of things, and one of them was preparing to move to Manchester, uh, which was hard to do when you live in Cockfosters, Uh, and the other one was preparing to be involved in pioneering and planting new churches and sites, which is quite hard to do when you're part of a church that's an established church that's been going for a long time. So it dawned on me that to do those things I needed to have a change to my circumstances. I needed to go and probably in the first instance get involved with a church plant, learn a bit about What that is like. And so doing that meant I had to hand in my notice and leave the job that I enjoyed, leave the job that was paying well and taking care of everything. That I needed. I needed to, with resigning the job, I needed to leave the house and find somewhere else to live. And I don't know if you know about London prices, but that isn't an easy thing to do. And it's particularly not an easy thing to do when you're about to go from having a job to not having a job and having money to not having money. Uh, I, I also needed to find a new church. And uh, the community I'd been part of, I had great friendships in. And I found a church plan that looked really good from the outside. I didn't really know any one there, so I was stepping out of a place that I was in community into a place where I was starting again. That was quite a scary time in my life. It was a time of transition and it was a time of change. And I had worries and I had anxieties about making that change. And we're starting a new series in the Bible today. And just to, to set a bit of context for you, this is about a group of people who had a big change. To make in their circumstances, so these were people who uh, were Israelites, but they were living in Babylon because 70 years earlier the Babylonians had invaded Jerusalem. they leveled the city to, a ground, to the ground, so they destroyed most of the buildings. They destroyed the temple. They destroyed the walls. They destroyed people's homes. They'd taken the best and the brightest and moved them to Babylon and said, "Look, you can live here, and you can integrate into Babylonian." culture. You can um, you can buy your houses here. You can plant your gardens here. You can get jobs here. You can raise your families in this place. You can go to our schools. You can build a new life for yourself in Babylon. So this is 70 years prior to when we're looking at. So a lot of people did that. They set up life in Babylon and got quite established there and th- these were like the grandparents generation. so then their kids they'd be um kind of next generation immigrants into babylon probably even more integrated into culture more opportunities for them more things to do more life to build there. and then another generation down you've got people who all they know is babylon right and then you've got this call given oh by the way now you're allowed if you want to to go back to jerusalem Jerusalem had a lot of significance spiritually. It was a place that God had worked historically. It's a place that a lot of the promises of God linked into. So you've got people here in Babylon who've got this choice to make, this tension between a place that they were probably quite comfortable, where life was set up to work, where things were were good for them. Do they move to a place that there's nothing there? There's no nowhere to live, no temple, no walls, nothing, it's it's a bit decrepit as a place, why would you go from here to here? Well, the only reason is if you think that that's a thing that God might want you to do. So it parallels in some ways my situation, although on a grander scale, of moving from a place where you're quite well set up to a situation where you're stepping out, where you've got worries, where you don't know how it's going to go because you think that God's in it. Well, at that day, you had a a guy called Zechariah. And Zechariah was a prophet, and we call him a minor prophet. Now, uh, let me just explain what we mean by a minor prophet, because that sounds like we're, we're kind of dissing him a bit. We're not trying to do that, right? At the back of the Old Testament, you've got 12 little books. They're called the minor prophets. And they're minor, not because they're unimportant, but because... They're right, it is quite short. So you've got three major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah and Ezekiel. And that's because back in the day when they wrote it all on scrolls, it took a whole scroll each for them. So Isaiah got his own scroll, Jeremiah got his own, Ezekiel got his own. But these 12, because their works were shorter, they fit all 12 on one scroll. And Zechariah is one of those. But what he had was a whole bunch of visions that God had shown him. And they were relevant for the people in his day, But also, they pointed to Jesus and they showed us things about what God would do beyond his day. That's why we call him a prophet. And so over the next few weeks, we're just going to pick out a few of these visions that Zechariah had. So if you've got a Bible and you want to follow along, the best way to find Zechariah is find Matthew at the start of the New Testament and just scroll back a few pages and you'll find Zechariah. Um, And I'm going to read chapter 2 for us today. To so Zechariah 2, and I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand, and then I said, where are you going? And he said to me, to measure Jerusalem, to see what is its width and what is its length. And behold, the angel who talked with me came forward, and another angel came forward to meet him. And said to him, Run, say to that young man, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls, because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. And I will be to her a wall of fire all round, declares the Lord, and I will be the glory in her midst. Up, up, flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord. I've spread you abroad as the four winds of the heavens, declares the Lord, up, escape to Zion, you who dwell with the daughter of Babylon. For thus said the Lord of hosts, after his glory sent me to the nations who plundered you. For he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. Behold, I will shake my hand over them, and they shall become plunder for those who serve them. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people. And I will dwell in your midst and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you and the Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the Holy Land and will again choose Jerusalem. Be silent, all flesh before the Lord, for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. So, lots going on in that passage. Um, It starts with a couple of angels interacting before Zechariah. One of them is an angel who's measuring Jerusalem and has got this big ruler out, and the other one is in conversation with him and with Zechariah. And these angels are having conversations that are basically bringing the people a few promises from God, and these promises are there to reassure them as they're going to make this journey back from Babylon to Jerusalem, all the worries, all the fears, all the anxieties, all the things in their mind, these promises are given to help them. I'm going to pick out three today. And the first one is the promise of significance. There's a promise of significance because I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where you've done something new, where you've started something off the ground, and the question in your head, if you're anything like me, is, will this thing actually work? Will this work? Um, We did a conference uh, about a month ago, and in all the run-up to it, my big fear and question is, will anybody want to come to this thing? Is it worth putting the effort in? Is it worth going after this thing? Will anybody be interested at all? Now, coming from Babylon to Jerusalem, if I was there, one of my questions would have been, look, if I move to Jerusalem, will it just be me and a few other people or or are loads of people going to come? Is this city actually going to get rebuilt or not? It's a fair worry because they're moving from something established to something decrepit, something secure to something insecure, something big to something small. And actually, whenever we pioneer, we do that. I don't know how many of you have had the experience of moving out of your parents' house. That's the classic experience, isn't it? Of moving from something... If your parents had a quite decent house in a nice area and had plenty of space, well decorated, they've done it up really nice and you've been living there and having quite a good time, and you decide you're gonna move out and get your own place, you move from a nice area to, to what you can afford, which often isn't quite as nice an area, usually not quite as nice a house, usually uh, a bit less done up, a bit more that needs to be fixed or, or born with for a while. You move from something big and good to something you know, not quite so much. Because you want to build something, you want to set up for yourself and establish, but you have to go a bit smaller, to do that. Or oh, the same is true if you ever leave a job to pioneer a business. You know, if you've been doing well in your job, you're getting paid a decent amount, you've got a good team of colleagues, it's fulfilling work, and you've got this idea, I'm going to set up on my own. At that point, you usually get less money, you usually get less good working conditions, there's usually less people on the team because you're trying to scrap it out from the ground up, at least initially. If you've ever been involved in church planting or site planting, it's usually the same. You're moving from a church where things are working, where there's a good community, where you've got friendships, where all the ministries are running and you've got uh, decent worship and kids work and hospitality and everything's going fine to, all right, there are now eight of us in a home and who's going to do what and how's it going to work and everything seems not quite the same, but you do it because you've got a dream, you want to pioneer, you want to start something new. So in this one, you've got this man turn up with this big measuring line ruler thing, who's going to measure Jerusalem to see its width and its length. What would you expect him to find as he goes to measure it? Because I'd be expecting him to find, yeah, it's pretty small. Yeah, there's not a lot going on. Babylon's massive. That's like the capital of the world at the time. But Jerusalem, yeah, maybe a few hundred meters round, a few a few tents in there, a little. Uh, basically, think a summer festival, a few people camping, and that's all you've got for. The city, but that's not what's said. Verse four says, "Run, say to that young man, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls, because of the multitude of people and livestock in it." Now, an ancient city used to have a city wall around it, and that was a good thing, and we'll talk more about that in a minute. But a city wall would be—you come to the city, you find somewhere within the wall to live, and it would be a constraint on the size of the city. And what he's saying here is, now, Jerusalem's not going to be like that because we can't constrain how big it's going to be. Actually, we can't have a wall because it's going to keep growing. There's going to be multitudes upon multitudes of people and livestock. So we can't limit this by a wall. It's going to be so much bigger than you're even imagining. We've got a promise of growth. And then that's explained a bit in verse 11, which says, many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people. So it's not just that all these um, Israelites who have gone to Babylon are going to come back. But what he's saying is think bigger. Think about a day when people from every nation of the world are going to be added into the people of God. And we see that through, through Jesus and his apostles. Jesus went round preaching the gospel of the kingdom all over Israel. And then after he died, rose again, he said to his disciples, right, now you guys, you go and do the same thing in all the world. Go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth and be my witnesses. And if you read the book of Acts in the New Testament, you see them doing exactly that. They go to Samaria, they go to Antioch, they go to Ephesus and Corinth and Rome and all these different big cities and they're preaching the gospel and people there have been added to the people of God. So much so that we're sitting here in England two millennia later as part of the kingdom of God. It's spread all over the world. In every nation in the world, people have been added to the kingdom of God. How many people now are in the kingdom of God today following Jesus? Billion plus? I I, don't have the exact figure, but it's big, isn't it? In those days, when they're thinking, just, oh yeah, there'll just be a few people in Jerusalem in in tents, it's scaled up. Jesus once um, told a parable. He, He said, the kingdom will be like a mustard seed. This is like the smallest of all seeds, but it doesn't stay small. It grows big. It becomes a massive tree. Often, when God's in something, it starts pretty tiny, but it grows. It becomes a significant thing. It works like this with most things in the kingdom of God. I think about pretty much every site we've started here at CCM. And the first time I've been to it, I've gone into a room and I thought, this ain't going to work. There's, like, there's about six of you, and... and one of you is kind of only there because they're friends with the leader and aren't actually going to be part of it. And uh, another two, I think, just got lost and turned up and uh, aren't even meant to be. here. And th- th- then you've got someone who's a bit... Sh- this isn't going to work. It always seems flimsy. It always seems to start small. But from it, each of our sides... So I remember here when uh, CCM Falafel was about six people in, in a vodka bar and um, trying to persuade all the people who'd come out to drink vodka, oh, no, no, come up to church instead. You're, you're much... Prefer- that and uh, not for a while getting much traction off that but eventually starting to see more and more people added and it grow into the every time we've done one it started small it started seemingly flimsy and yet usually what's happened is it's grown and it's taken root and it's flourishes I mean that every time you start something that's small it always does flourish we don't have a, a direct promise for every initiative that we do but what we have is this big principle thing that a, a small thing after small thing after small thing comes into play through it all the kingdom of God grows large. So much so that when you get to the end of the Bible, last book of the Bible is called Revelation and I think Revelation is a book that scares a lot of people and a lot of people are a bit intimidated about the idea of reading it because you read it and there's always weird things happening in it. Um, uh, my best analogy for what's going on is if you ever saw the 2012 Olympic games the opening ceremony do you remember it when Danny Boyle uh, had this thing with like loads of like british things going on so you had all these mary poppinses uh, come down and i think they were dancing with nhs beds and then you had mr bean in an orchestra and uh, we watched it and we kind of picked up on what was going on because we knew the background we knew the cultural references we knew what all these things were and we went, oh that's clever he's riffing on this idea and bringing this idea in. Yeah, I get what you're trained to do. Revelation's a lot like that. So you read it and if you've got no idea what any of the things are, you're like, this is just crazy. But if you know some of the things that they're referring to, it makes a lot of sense. And the things that they're referring to are a lot of the things in Zechariah and Ezekiel and Daniel and these prophets of the Old Testament. So The second to last chapter in the Bible, Revelation 21, verses 15 and 16. See if you pick up the link here. And one spoke with me, the one who spoke with me, had a measuring rod. You see, he's going back to the same idea of gold to measure the city. And this is talking about the new Jerusalem and its gates and its walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod. 12,000 stadia, its length and width and height are equal. So this time in Revelation, the man with the measuring rod actually gives us the numerical measurement. We didn't get that in Zechariah, which is 12,000 stadia. But I've got a footnote at the bottom of my Bible saying that that translates to about 1,380 miles. So the measurement of the city, the width of it, is over 1,000 miles wide. That's just a city. That's bonkers, right? And the length of it and the height of it. So it's like a cube. Imagine this weird cube city. Now... We're not meant to literally think, okay, yeah, the city will be a cube and it'll be like all all stacked. That's not quite the point. He's using big numbers. He, He might as well have said, yeah, the guy measured it. It was like a gazillion miles long and wide and high. He's getting across. This is just so huge you can't comprehend it. That is the point. I think God wants to encourage some of us today. Because I think many of us wrestle with the idea of smallness. And insignificance. I think that's a thing that uh, sits on a lot of us. Maybe you feel just the idea of how can the church, how can just gatherings of people like this coming together, trying to serve one another, love one another, do our best to follow God? How can this be something that God uses to transform the world? It's it's too small. It's too flimsy. Maybe you think about a particular ministry that you're involved with, a project that you've started, a group that you're doing, something that you've started. Yeah, I'm struggling to get many people along to it. I'm struggling to grow it. It seems so small. Is it even worth my time? Maybe you're thinking in your job, I'm not doing what I dreamed I'd be doing. My job doesn't seem to be significant enough. Maybe you think about yourself. And you think I'm just so, so small, I, I see myself as insignificant. How can good things come from me? And I think this passage shows us that as God takes a measure of things, it's very different to how we see them. We might see something as small and insignificant, but God can and he does use the small and insignificant for very big, significant results. I think that's a really encouraging promise for each of us as we step out. The second promise we get uh, is a promise of protection. I remember when I I was leaving Cockfosters, my biggest... uh, My biggest anxiety, really, I was pretty insecure from a financial point of view. I was just worried, like, I've not got any money, London's so expensive, I need a job pretty quickly, Um, I don't know where I'm going to look, I don't really have many um, obvious openings, so uh, I'm going to commit myself to a flat, but it, it felt risky and it felt... Insecure. You can imagine for those people leaving Babylon, it felt even riskier and even more insecure because it wasn't just about financial, it was about their physical safety. Because we've heard it will be a city without walls. But if I was going there, I'd be like, hang on a second, a city without walls. Aren't walls quite important for a city? Because don't walls protect you from travelling bandits coming in and beating you up and nicking all your stuff? And and aren't walls quite useful if there's an enemy army there to stop them getting in and taking it off you? Or uh, won't walls stop any wild beasts roaming the land from just coming into the city? I'd quite like a wall. And, And so you can imagine there's a feeling of worry and insecurity, And actually, when um, when God asks them to go back, he's asking them to do something that feels risky. And there's all sorts of times that people uh, are asked by God to do risky things. So sometimes you might be asked to lay down a well-paying job uh, and to do something that's much less secure, that's much less well-paying for the sake of God's kingdom. That feels risky. Sometimes God might ask you to move away from an established friendship community to go and pioneer something new. That feels risky. Sometimes God might ask you to move out of a comfortable area and go and live in a place that's more deprived and has a higher crime rate. That feels risky. I've got friends who have done all of those things because they felt led by God to do them. And into that, God makes this promise in verse 5. I will be to her a wall of fire all round. I will be a wall of fire. A fire. The role that would usually be played by the physical infrastructure of the wall, God's saying, I'm going to play that role myself. Now, I think physical walls can be quite useful. A couple of years ago, I went to Chester and we walked on some of the city wall uh, there. I don't know if you've seen it or in other old cities. I can imagine if you lived there, that wall would help you feel secure. It would help you feel safe. They do offer some protection, right? But walls can fall. We know that. That, That's the whole point of siege warfare. Enemies would bring big equipment. They could get past the walls. They could take the walls down. They help a bit, but they don't give full security. But now picture God himself as a wall around the city. Which wall is stronger? People might be able to tear down the physical walls of Chester, but they're not going to tear down God as the wall of fire, the protector of his people. That we need a perspective shift. So often we can get a sense of security from earthly things that only go so far. So we feel secure because we've got a job or we feel secure because we've got a savings account or because we've got the nice house in the nice area or whatever it may be. And we miss the fact that all of that stuff is temporary and all of that stuff is vulnerable and all of that stuff can be taken away just as walls can be torn down. But when you put your trust in the Lord... He will never fail you and he will never forsake you. Corrie ten Boom was someone who uh, was around at the time of the Second World War. She was sent to a concentration camp because her and her family were helping Jewish people escape from the Nazis. So eventually she was caught and sent to one of the camps. But she said this, she said the safest place to be is in the centre of the Lord's will. The safest place to be is in the centre of the Lord's will. And that's what we see in this passage, because as they followed the Lord's will, the Lord said, I'll be that fire around you. That's not saying that bad things will never come your way. Corrie ten Boom can testify, bad things might still come your way if you're following God. But it does say that in it all, he's your protector, he's your shield, and those things that come your way will never ultimately defeat you. That's what it says in Romans 8. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. These things might come our way, but because God is our protector, and ultimately through Christ and what he's done on the cross for us, those things can never defeat us. We are more than conquerors. And then you've got this final promise, and that's the promise of the presence of God. The most important question in anything that we wanna do is, is God in this? We had a guy preaching here about two or three months ago called Emmanuel, I don't know if any of you were around. He's a guy from Uganda who's led a whole movement of churches there, started hospitals, schools and churches throughout East Africa. And um, he's based in Uganda himself, but has pioneered into South Africa, into Burundi, into Rwanda, into South Sudan, into lots of other countries around that part of the world. And after the service, I had the job of driving him down to Worcester, which is where he was staying. So I had a couple of hours in the car with Emmanuel, and one of the questions that I asked him during that time was, Emmanuel, how do you decide what to do? How do you decide where's the next place, what's the next project? And he said, Tom, everything that we've done, I've asked God, and God's shown me a sign what to do. I only want to do something if I know that God's in it. And that's the right attitude, isn't it? We want to do what God is up to. We want to join where God is working. That's why I made that move from Cockfusters, because I thought God was speaking to me and calling me to do a different thing. And that would have been a big question for those people at the time. Going back to Jerusalem, will God really be in that? Because... 70 years ago, the temple got smashed down. That's the place where God's presence was. And um, it looks like maybe uh, kind of the Jerusalem deal's finished now. There's no, uh, there's no guarantee, is there, that we go back there and God's presence will somehow be back in Jerusalem like it used to be. And besides, we've got all these stories in, in exile of how God's worked in Babylon. You read Esther or you read Daniel and you see God's been at work in Babylon. So do we really need to go back to Jerusalem? Is God... Going to be there. Well, he's got uh, two things in this passage that uh, speak into that. Verse 5, we talked about the wall of fire, but then it says, I will be the glory in her midst. And then in verse 10, it says, Sing and rejoice. Behold, I come and I will dwell in your midst. And that was the promise. That was the reason they were being called back. Leave Babylon, go to Jerusalem. Why? Because I, the Lord God, will be there I'll be with you God wants relationship with people and he said his presence will be there in Jerusalem and so even without the other things even without the promise that it would grow or be protected even if it was just a few tents around this a rundown city if God's presence was going to be there then that's enough Francis Chan said that God's presence is all that matters I remember when I was 19, um, I hadn't become a Christian yet, but I was kind of on the edge. I was asking a few questions, starting to explore faith. And I went along to a meeting on my university campus that was, um, I guess, a little bit like a church service. There was a bit of teaching, there was some prayer, there was some uh, singing. And I remember the first time I went, during one of the songs... I just had some shivers start running down my spine and uh, I did what most people would do and I just dismissed it and thought, yeah, it's probably drafty or something like that. Um. Until the next week. And then week two, we were singing and same thing happens. I start getting shivers running down my spine. And it happened like four or five weeks in a row. And eventually I got to the point where I was like, I need to ask someone what's going on. Like, Is this normal? Is this happening to everyone else? So I said to my friend Ollie, like, Ollie, during the singing, I keep getting shivers down my spine. What's that all about? And he said, Tom, you're probably not going to believe me, but I think you've met with the presence of God. I think God is trying to get your attention in this way and um, it took me a little while longer but eventually I realised he was right and God had got my attention and so I started following him I gave my life to Jesus. The presence of God is so powerful but the presence of God isn't mainly about getting shivers during the worship that's not the the heart of it there's a much deeper truth and that's if you're following Jesus you have his Holy Spirit with you all the time wherever you go whatever you do when you feel it When you don't feel it, you know his promise is I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. As followers of Jesus, he is with us wherever we go. And we do crave those uh, experiences where where we sense his presence in a powerful way. Just the same as with anyone who you care for, of course you want to enjoy being in their presence uh, and know that and dwell in it. And I believe we can experience God's presence, both on our own as we're, as we're praying and enjoying our time with him, and together as we gather. We're called the church, the temple of the living God. We're like the bricks that make the dwelling place of God. So as we gather, I think we will experience the presence of God. So we're going to go back into a time of worship now. Maybe uh, Bethany, and Ian, if you jump forward, please. And as we worship, let's Let's expect some things to happen. Let's expect some experience of God's presence. God is with us. God is here. And let's expect him to meet with us. Let's also expect our faith to rise, for God to do something big and significant. In all those areas of life that might seem small, let's ask God if we can have a new perspective on things, to see things his way and how he is growing and building his kingdom. And then let's find comfort in his protection, that he's promised to be this wall of fire, that he's our guardian, that he's our shield. And that whatever's going on that makes us feel worried or insecure, let's lean into the comfort that comes from knowing that.